We're going to be starting um, the biography of Paul for this month. So um, last, last month it was the book of Exodus, but then I did a thing on Billy Graham, and well, we didn't finish Exodus, so there you go. Um, but I chose to do uh, the biography of Paul because uh, I think it's the 23rd or the 22nd. Uh, there's a movie coming out called uh, Paul the Apostle. And uh, you guys remember Passion of the Christ yeah. and the guy that played Jesus, Jim Caviezel? Well, he, he's playing uh, Luke in, uh, in this new movie called The Apostle Paul. So I wanted to, I really think that the Holy Spirit is in this film. God is in the arts, believe it or not. And just as he used that film, I think he's going to use this film because the story of Paul is so key and crucial for us to understand uh, the theology that we begin to walk out and to live in. And so um, I, I, God's in it. And Jim Caviezel, like, man, like if anybody could be Jesus, it's Jim Caviezel. And I just want to tell you his story real quick. Like he's worth looking up on YouTube, uh, even though he's a Catholic. I like Catholics. Catholics are going to heaven, the ones that love Jesus. Protestants are going to heaven too, the ones that love Jesus, right? Okay, so uh, Jim Caviezel was a very up-and-coming actor. Like, he was going to be the man. He was going to be the star. Mel Gibson gives him a phone call. Um, Caviezel has this testimony about being called, ready for this, being called to be an actor, like, we think that most people get called to become a pastor or a missionary. Well, he, his call was a calling to be an actor. And he responded to that call, and he was submissive to that call. Isn't that kind of cool? Kind of changes the way you think about stuff. And so in that calling, he says, Lord, I will be obedient to whatever you ask me to do. Mel Gibson gives him a phone call. And he says, hey, I really like what you do, and I don't think it's any coincidence that your initials are JC right. and that you're 33 years old, and I, I want you to play Jesus. And, and Mel Gibson says, and you know that this is going to be career suicide if you take this role. Like, chances are Hollywood will never hire you again if you take this role. Do you want it? And he didn't even need to think about it. He was just walking in obedience, and he took one of the most powerful roles in cinematic history. And his career wasn't over. He has done stuff. And yet, once again, he's being submissive to what the Holy Spirit's doing and playing another role, another biblical role, and this time in Luke. And I do think that God's at it. And so that's why I want to talk about Paul today and Paul's life. The Apostle Paul, they get your Bibles out turn to Acts. We're going to be looking at chapter, mostly chapter 9. Paul is going to be, for most of us, probably difficult to identify with. Um, and yet, he is so crucial to even how we think as Christians. But he was, a, um, he was not born in Jerusalem. He was not, he wasn't even, he wasn't even born in Israel. He was born in Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. And, he, and he, he lived in one of the most prosperous cities in, in, in the Mediterranean called Tarsus, which was a, then, then it was a port city. Now it's not because of global warming or something. I don't know. But it's not on the water anymore. But back then it was on the water. And um, he grew up inside of a Jewish community. 
and yet he had Roman citizenship. And we're not quite sure how that all worked. We don't know if dad was a Roman or, or, or not, but we think that his dad was actually probably um, uh, part of uh, the Sanhedrin. We're not sure. But anyway, um, but he was the star pupil. So inside of Jewish communities, inside of, you know, they would have, you know, something similar to our vacation Bible school, our VBS, and they would pick out the most gifted and the brightest students, and the rabbis would pour into these students, and they would begin to nurture them, and they would notice the ones that, could, that, that had a grasp of the Torah or the Scripture that could memorize it, that they could understand it, and that could recite it, and Paul was one of them. And... And so he gets fostered up, and he gets promoted. Basically, he gets a scholarship to Harvard. So if you want to think of it this way, Paul, is, he, he's got the Ivy League education. And, and they take him to Jerusalem to be educated by Gamaliel, who was, he is the number one professor rabbi in Jerusalem. And even to this day, Gamaliel is noted as being the, the top of all of, of, of the, the Torah teachers. So he had the very best teacher in the world. And Paul soaked it up. And here's the difference. So Paul, we don't think that he ever saw Jesus. There's nothing in the scriptures that, that said that he actually met Jesus. And so we don't know if he was ever exposed. So maybe he was in Turkey when Jesus was doing his ministry. But then we know that he came down and he was zealous. Paul even describes himself as zealous. Now let me clarify this too. He had two names. His first name was Saul. That was his Hebrew name. And then he most likely had a Latin name or a Greek name, and that was Paul. So he's got two names. And he's got two citizenships. And he lives in two different places. And he's an Ivy League educated guy. And all of the men and women that uh, began to build the early church, you know, Peter and Paul and uh, Peter and, and Simon and um, James and John, and all these guys, uh, Matthew the tax collector, they were all working class kind of guys, blue collar workers, whatever, fishermen. And so. Paul's a different type of a leader, and he didn't fit in. Even though he states that I am of, you know, I'm, the, I'm of the house of Benjamin. I am a Jew of Jews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As, as according to the law, I'm flawless. I follow all the rules. I am the ideal Jewish guy with the one exception that he did not, he was not from Jerusalem. He was from, he wasn't even from Israel. He was just part of a Jewish community that had a, had a colony somewhere else. You know what it's like being, well, maybe we don't. I don't. But you know what it's like being really smart, gifted, and yet you're still the, man, that's not me. <laughs> like I was that solid C-plus student. Anyway, um, I just wanted to get by. Amen. Amen on getting by. People like this need to prove themselves. People from the outside that come in that are not a part of the club, that are highly motivated, highly driven, highly educated, they need to prove themselves. And Paul was that guy. Saul was that guy. He was dedicated to the Torah, to the law, to the scriptures. He was zealous about it. 
He wanted to know everything that he could possibly know about God. This thirst for knowledge. And then the thirst for being right. And this, this, this desire for righteousness, making sure that the world is as it ought to be. This, this all sounds like good stuff, right? And God shows Paul or Saul to be a part of the early church. I don't know exactly when he was called to it. We'll get into the story in a second. But God chose him. He, he chose him to be one of the disciples or one of the apostles. In, in this sense, I think that God even wanted Paul to be one of the 12. Maybe when the other guy blew it and maybe when Judas was out, Judas, Judas hit it, maybe it should have been Paul. I mean, some theologians think that way because the guy, Matthias, that they chose to be the replacement, that's the only credits he gets. Like, we never hear anything from the guy that replaced Judas, but it seems as if Paul was that guy, and yet he was different than everybody else. The way that we read the scriptures, the way that the scholars look at the language of, of the, the Pauline epistles, they, they believe that his Greek, his, his, it was the lingua franca at the time, it was the common Greek, common language, Quinea Greek, street language, like, we, they think that that was his original language. That was his first language, and that he learned Hebrew later. And so he had a different perspective. We, the way that we read his letters, oh, by the way, like two-thirds of the New Testament Paul wrote. And we're pretty confident that, um, we're pretty confident that a big chunk of them are actually from his, his hand. I mean, there might be some copies and some piecing together here and there. Well, we're pretty confident that he did not write Hebrews. Um, probably a woman wrote that. It's like, we can't put her name on that, so let's just leave it off. Um, no, I don't know. We're just, this is Kapczynski. Imaginations run wild. Anyway. Um, but when we look at it, it's like, oh my God, there's something different about his mind. Like he's got, um, he, he's got a firm grasp, not only of the law, but he's also got a firm grasp grasp of of Greek philosophy like we could see bits and pieces of Stoic philosophy inside of his writings so that makes him unique in communicating to a people that would not have heard Jesus before he's uniquely designed to be the missionary and yet he resisted and yet, his passion and his zeal to know more about God drove him to madness, to where he was a murderer. We won't read this part, but in the Acts chapter 8, we have the death of Stephen, St. Stephen. And they, they, he was preaching the gospel, and he had a vision of open heaven, and he, he declared that he could see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And in, in front of the... The Pharisees at that time, that's blasphemy. And so they, 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 mur they murdered Stephen. They threw rocks at him until he died. And then it says that those that witnessed, those that witnessed, basically those that killed him, those that were throwing the stones, they, they came before the young Saul, and they laid his garments at his feet. So basically what he's saying is... Uh, Saul put the hit out on Stephen. Saul killed him. Saul gave the order. 
he definitely gave it his okay. <laughs> so the, guy, the guy that we get all of our, our concept of, of grace, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. That statement came from somebody that was a murderer, somebody that put a hit out on a saint. And so I can't imagine what Paul would have gone through when he actually crossed over and he converted. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about right now. We're going to talk about his, his conversion, his encounter, his divine encounter on the road to Damascus. And so I had to print it off because the last version I read didn't come out too well. So um, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the, disciple, the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, it's in Syria, so that if so, that if he found any there who belonged to the way. Um, before they were called Christians, they were called people of the way. I like that. Anybody that belonged to the, to the way, either men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around, around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Right there, we need to pause for a second, because right there in that one statement, we get a lot of information. He is leaving the country of Israel, going to another country to hunt down Christians and to drag them back. This is how zealous he is. And we believe that there was a lot of persecution going. We know there was a lot of persecution going on in Jerusalem, even though at the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the, the exponential growth of the church, like overnight, like there was, they were hard-pressed to destroy this thing. We don't know how many people got murdered during this season, but we know that Paul was leading it. He was so zealous about it that he was willing to chase down those that ran away. And this is what he's doing. I'm going to get them. I'm going to kill them. And a light from heaven comes down, knocks him off his horse, and his response in the presence of power is to say, who are you, what was, the, what was it, Lord? And that's important. That's an important statement because right there we see that he knows who he's encountering. He knows that this, this power, this experience, this light, this weight that's knocked him off, like that is from his Lord. He's not having some weird experience. It's not the weather. It's not the wind. It is the Lord, and he recognizes it because he knows God, because he knows the Torah. And I believe that this isn't the first time that God has tried to break through to Paul's soul. We don't have any references to that, but I know how God works. I know how the Holy Spirit works. I know how he speaks to me, and you do too. 
the nature and the character of God when he wants to communicate to us. It is mostly in the still, small voice, in the, in the quiet of night, in night seasons, when the, the Holy Spirit begins to whisper truth into our ears, begins to minister to our souls, and we know that it's true, but we don't necessarily respond. But God is a good father, and he's, he's desperate to make a connection with us. And he will do, he will move heaven and earth to get your attention. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And this is going to be fun. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul, they stood there speechless. They, they, they heard a sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Okay, so he gets knocked off his horse. I'm assuming he's on a horse because that's what artists portrayed, but doesn't say that, but I'm going to go with the artist. So he gets knocked off, and he's just like, he gets, he gets instantly blind. Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh, my NIV left this off, but if you have King James or NASB or any better version than what I just read, uh, your Bible will say, it is, NIV, or the King James says, it is not good for thee to kick against the pricks. Does, anybody, does anybody's Bible say that? All right, I got one, I got two. Can I get a three? I got a four. Yay, all right. Your version might say it is, not, it is not good or it's not healthy for you to push against the goads. And what in the world is Jesus saying? Like, I have no idea, Jesus, what you're saying. It's not good for thee to kick against the pricks? What does that mean? Like, we have to actually do a word study and figure it out. But Paul knew exactly what Jesus was saying instantly because he was speaking Paul's language. It's not good for thee to kick against the pricks. What does that mean? Yeah. So this gets into the area of human nature. This gets into the area of our fallenness. This, gets in, this pushes into the uncomfortable area of your will and of your stubbornness and of your persistence because to the, the, the goad, you know, have you ever goaded? You know what goad means? Uh, to goad is to prod. To goad is, okay, so, um, you know, Jesus always calls us unfortunate names, like dumb sheep, right? And I guess Paul didn't fit into the dumb sheep category, but he did fit into the stubborn ox category. Because what Paul is saying is it is not good for you to be a dumb ox that pushes against the prodding. I'm poking you. I'm prodding you. And the, the goad was a stick, and it had, a, it had a, a nail on it. It had a spike on it. And so when the ox was not going on the path, when the ox was not plowing in the right way or running off or being naughty, you would get the goad and you would, you would poke this big ox with this big giant nail until he got the point, right, that he was heading in the wrong direction. 
This is Paul's major problem. Knowledge of God was not Paul's problem. Going to church was not Paul's problem. Tithing was not Paul's problem. Paul's problem is my problem and it's your problem and that he had a rebellious spirit that was resisting the leadings and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Because you don't get knocked off your horse with a beam of light. God doesn't break into your reality unless you are refusing to pay attention. God does not blind you unless you are so stubborn that you're refusing God's direction and his correction. God loves those that he corrects. All right, it's illustration time. You want some good stories? When I was a boy, I was one of those strong-willed children. Believe it or not, now I'm like perfect, like I'm a little saint, right? I'm a little angel. My, my parents used to be the young adult leaders when they were young. And um, I don't know, I was like four or five. And I thought that I was, an, and I was an only child. I'm pretty much still an only child, even though I have a 25-year-old sister. But there's 18 years between us, so my parents have two only children. That's confusing, right? But it's true. They have two spoiled only children, and we don't know how to share. I always eat the last cookie. I'll finish off the last bit of the milk in the refrigerator, and I'm always, you know, just, anyway. And so I, we were all young adults. We're Bob's big boy. How many people remember Bob's big boy? Amen. I think there's one left. Is there one left? All right. Bob's big boy still in existence. And everybody had these Sundays and since I was, like, you know, special, I thought that I deserved everybody's cherry off of everybody's Sunday. And I got them all. I got every single one except for the one guy that, was, that took his Sunday off the ice cream and was going to give it to me and then stuck it in his mouth last minute. Right? And as a little kid, I was, like, freaked out. And my parents are trying to discipline me in the restaurant. Parents, can I get an amen on this one when your child has a full-blown tantrum meltdown in public? And they couldn't correct me, and they had to haul me out yelling and screaming, and then, then I get disciplined in the parking lot. Mako, uh, when she was a kid, her mom said, okay, because Mako actually is not an only child. She knows how to share. She's very considerate, you know, <laughs> unlike her husband. So I, I, don't do, I guess siblings fight. They do. There's 18 years between my sister, and we still fought in the back seat as grown adults. Like, I don't understand that. But we just like, you stay on your side. And like, I'm like 30 years old, and I'm like, this is, this is my line. Don't cross that line. Anyway, so... Uh, how many years are between you and your, your sister? Four years. And so when they're little girls, mom is saying, you guys need to quit fighting with one another. You guys need to be nice to each other, and you guys need to share, and you need to quit yelling at each other. You need to behave yourselves. And did they listen to that correction? Did they listen to that instruction? No. In fact, uh, Anna, my, my sister-in-law, made Mako so mad that Mako got her Barbies and cooked them on the stove. Yeah. 
Ja, ja, ja. Oh, cannibalism going on. You want another one? All right, this one's good. So, I was, again, strong-willed child, and I, and I wanted something, and my mom wouldn't give me something, and we were in the car, and uh, I would not listen. I would not listen to her instruction. Full-blown rebellion. And, uh, but you see, I'm in the back seat, and my mom's driving the car. So I have power now. <laughs> yeah? No, I got some power. At least in this moment, I have some control. Um, there were also uh, two baby calves in the back seat. That's another story. But it wasn't about the, the livestock in the back seat of the car. I'm being serious. There was livestock in the back seat of the car. It wasn't about that. It's about something that I wanted. And it was about me throwing a temper tantrum and me not obeying what my mom was saying. And so I grabbed her hair from the back seat and I shook her head violently until I got what I, well, she pulled over eventually. But like, I mean, so here's the deal. We are naturally rebellious. By nature, we're rebellious. You think that your kids are sweet and innocent, but deep down inside, we just know that they're just, they're just little sinners, Right? <laughs> They're just little sinners. And here's, look, here's, here's, the, here's the truth of the illustration. Don't touch that pot. It will burn you. Don't touch that pot. It will burn you. Don't touch that pot. It will burn you. Right? I'm going to touch the pot. Why do we do this? If you go out and party tonight, and if you come home drunk, I'm going to take away your car, and you're never going to drive again for the rest of your life. You know the consequences of the decision, and yet you do the decision anyway. Even know that you're, even you know that you're going to pay the consequences for the decision. You're going to touch the hot pot. This is what Paul was doing in the spirit. Even though he was following God, even though he was doing the Torah, even though that he was zealous, he was not allowing the Holy Spirit to correct him. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. It is hard for you to receive instruction. See, I, the way that my God works is that he's always whispering in my ear. He's always leading me, always guiding me, always trying to get me course corrected. Yet I still have a rebellious nature that wants to grab the pot. And this is how good and loving our God is, is that he will prod us and poke us and break into our reality and knock us off our horse with a beam of light. Isn't that amazing? That's how, that's how amazing God is. He doesn't want us dumb ox to hurt ourselves. He pokes us and prods us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I feel sorry for Ananias. I don't think I could have done what he did. The Lord came to Ananias in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, the same response, right? Except one's coming out of obedience. The other one's coming out of fear of being in the Lord's presence. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I want to live on Straight Street. (laughs) 
and <laughs> and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. The Lord, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief of priests to arrest us and everyone who calls you by name. But the Lord said to Ananias, this is always fun, go. So Ananias gets, he gets the goad. He gets the prick because he's pushing up against God. He's actually questioning God. You can do it. I just, I just really uh, recommend that you, that, that you surrender. <laughs> like, like get, you know, and this is what he does. He qu- asks the question, and God says, go. This man is chosen, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Isn't that sweet? Like, known enemies. Like, he's taking a huge risk. And yet he comes at him with an affectionate term. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again. And... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he had the information, he had the knowledge, but he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. And he took some food, and he regained regained his strength. And this is his conversion on Damascus Road. Isn't that cool that God would do... I mean, you might think it's kind of, I don't know, why would God blind him? No, he needed to be blinded. He needed, like, why, why did God choose his eyes? Why did God put scales over his eyes? It's because Paul's perception, his lens and what he, he, his, his tools that he used to see his world around him and his circumstances, no, that filter was all wrong, even though he thought it was all right. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he could not see what was God was doing because he was not filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew the word, but he did not know power. And it is such like God to, to say, okay, this is where you're weak. You're weak in, in the way that you perceive. And so these scales are going to come off. It's as if you've got some bad contacts, Right? literally changes Paul's lens. And now he's got a new lens where he sees the world through the Holy Spirit. And because of this, he begins to write down everything and begins to minister to his communities, begins to plant churches and goes on missions. And his message, I mean, it's complex. He talks about everything from justification to righteousness to sanctification. Like Paul gets it. But do you know what he really is telling us? He's saying, you know what, it's not about following the rules. It's about this lifestyle of the Christian that we need to begin to practice and begin to live in and begin to experience and begin to get it into our heads. Paul talks a lot about how we think. Not just about what we perceive, but how we actually think this stuff through. 
how we think the faith through. Because he came from a place of knowledge, and now he's moving us into a place of wisdom. And what Paul, one of his basic messages in all of his letters is this. Knowing God isn't good enough. You must figure out how to be known by God. Are you known by God? Jesus talks about that quite a bit. We did all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. We cast out demons. We fed the sick. We preached your gospel. We went to church. We punched the time clock. We checked the religious box. We know you. And yet Jesus' response is, that's funny because I don't know you. Huh? I want to encourage you to be known by God right here in this place. Like, I guess you get to choose because God is relentless. His love for you is, is, is it's fierce. And it's, it's just this... It's this poking, it's this prodding. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He doesn't, he doesn't force, he doesn't get in your face, he doesn't yell at you. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know that God's not going to get in your face and yell at you? No, he will surround you by his glory if need be, but he wants you to learn by the gentle nudges of his Holy Spirit. Like this spiritual journey that we are on, it's a lot like working out. Like this spiritual journey that we're on, it's a lot like having a healthy diet. And you can't grow into spiritual health by hitting it only once. Can you get into shape by spending eight hours in the gym only one day a month? It's impossible, right? But we trick ourselves because you go into the gym and you get all, you know, you pump yourself up and then, but you can't run a lap around your own block. But you convinced yourself that you're spiritually healthy. It's March now, right? So how many people have stuck to their New Year's resolutions on their diet? Like, I've tricked my... I've got some. Yay, praise God. I've done this. I'm like, you know what? Christmas time, I ate, I ate two pounds of seized chocolate last, last year. It's awesome. It's awesome. That's like, I didn't have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like, well, there's some nuts in this, so I got some protein. <laughs> that evens it out, right? Now, I, I, don't, I put on some weight over Christmas. And then you do this, this psychological thing where, like, all right, I know I'm, like, 10 pounds overweight, but I'm going to eat this salad and instantly get skinny. Oh, I'm so hungry. I ate a salad for lunch. I, am, I can feel my ribs popping out of my rib cage, right? And so we, we do this in the natural, but I got some bad news for you. You do it in the spiritual too. Oh, I came to church and I got all amped up on Jesus. Worship was inspiring and the pastor dropped some knowledge on me. <laughs> eh? Is this good enough, everybody? It's not. Let's just be real. Let's just be real. It's just like, I don't know, sometimes we just come to church and we drink a Diet Coke spiritually. And we trick ourselves into thinking that we're healthy when we're not. Let's not kick against the pricks, folks. Let's not be rebellious to what God is asking us to do.
it's much easier and better to do it God's way instead of doing it our way. But my little inner five-year-old says, ready? My little inner five-year-old says, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> right? My uh, little inner American says that too. Don't tread on me. I got my yellow flag with the snake on it. Don't tread on me. Don't take away my rights. Yeah? That's just American. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. I, I want to encourage you just to begin to like Jesus telling you what to do because his ways are better than our ways. They're a lot better than our ways. Because in his word, there is truth and then there is life. And we probably should become the people of the way, the lifestyle, the vision, God's vision, God's mindset. Maybe we could even grow up into Paul's confidence where everything that he spoke, he spoke a life into the entire communities, not just people. He spoke life into entire communities, entire regions. We wouldn't be sitting here if when he got, off, when he got knocked off his horse, if he, if he didn't say, who are you, Lord? We wouldn't be sitting here. All right, forget the band coming to the front. And, uh, and the ushers as well. And I want to encourage you, like, do, do, you, do you just know God or, or are you known by him? Do you just have head knowledge of this Christianity thing? Or, or do you want to begin to live it out and be a, a new creation, as Paul would say? A new being. The church should be a new race of people. Do you know that we're not called to fit in to this culture? God never called us to fit in. He called us to transform it. it it's okay to, to be different as a Christian in this culture. We're called to be. And as we begin to, to unpack more of Paul's life, like he can really, he really does show us how to think and how to live and how to act and how to be this thing that we call Christian or the people of the way. Uh, would you stand with me? God, right now, I, I just pray that you just do a, a deep work inside of us. God, as we give back to you, God, I pray that we would just give back with a thankful and a grateful heart. God, I, I, I know you have placed your angels in this building and around this campus, that you have the best planned out for this whole congregation, that you have a, a plan and a purpose and a vision for everybody here. And you even have a plan and a purpose for their finances. And God, that's probably one of the things that we say no to the most. You can't tell me what to do with my money. God, I pray right now that you just break us of that pride and just give us the ability to put our faith and our trust in you in the areas of tithes and offerings. It's the only thing that you've asked us to challenge you in. And so God, right now, we just, we just repent that get us to the place where we can actually make you truly the Lord of our whole lives. Bless this offering as it continues to grow the ministries of this church. And church, thank you so much for your faithfulness and in investing in these ministries. God bless you guys as you get back.